1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. I want to start talking about an application called EncryptPad. Now, this is an application that serves a unique purpose for me. I have plenty of text editors I like. I've been bouncing between Sublime Text for a local text editor. I even use Kate for a lot of smaller tasks. And, uh, of course, recently I have switched almost all of my note-taking slash cloud notes over to Code MD. And I've certainly, that's been the case for show prep and stuff like that. But there was a niche, there was a specific need that has been left out, and that is with encrypted text. How do you store things like bank information how do you store things that aren't necessarily passwords, but need almost basically the same protection as passwords? And so I've looked around for a couple of different applications to, to solve this for me. And one of the ones that I've been using for years as my personal journaling app is um, Lifograph. And so I've created a, I, I've tried using a, a different Lifograph document that I've encrypted with a separate password to store some information. And that worked OK. Um, I've tried creating encrypted containers using Veracrypt and or just specifying a block, uh, creating a block and then encrypting that block with X4 and uh, and Lux. And, and that's worked OK, too. But Encrypt is basically it's a simple text editor with encryption, and so it can view or edit encrypted text. And it's able to encrypt and decrypt binary files such as images, videos, archives, and it uses the most widely chosen quality file format, OpenPGP. Unlike other applications that use asymmetric encryption, the primary focus of EncryptPad is symmetric encryption. They also have a very unique command line tool called Encrypt CLI. And uh, Encrypt CLI is a cross-platform. It supports Windows, Mac, and Linux. It supports both passphrase and key file protection or a combination of both, um, It's it has a customizable passphrase generator for uh, generating strong random passphrases, and uh, and again, like I say, support for binary file encryption. They also have a unique mode called read-only mode that avoids accidental modification uh, of, of an encrypted document. So, for example, I have my routing numbers and my bank account numbers. Now, when I first create the document, of course, I have to be able to edit them and enter in all of the information, but then once that's there, it's really just a function of referencing, and I just need to be able to copy and paste. I certainly don't ever want to modify the uh, those documents. Pat phrases are not kept in memory. Rather, they're, they're only salted in 52K, or S2K, excuse me, results are stored. Uh, it supports multiple cipher algorithms, CAST5, triple DES, AES-128, and AES-256. So if you're looking for a simple uh, note-taking application, simple note text editor, that supports encryption. I highly recommend you give EncryptPad a uh, a look. And not only is it a fantastic little application, it also uh, supports all of the dark theming and looks really, really good in a dark environment, something that I have to say um, Lifograph didn't do. So in CryptPad we'll have more information for you in the show notes. There also, and this is really interesting. When it comes to security-based software, obviously the security of how you obtain the software is kind of important, right? Uh, and so on their GitHub page, they actually have an integrity verification procedure that you can follow uh, to ensure that the software that you're getting out of the repository is in fact the uh, is in fact valid software and, valid and genuine software. And so a huge, a huge props to the team that has put this together. I'm kind of surprised, to be honest with you. I've not run into it in the past, um, but I have now, and uh, and I'm very happy. So it's become my new default. Uh, if I just have a piece of information I have to save, why wouldn't you do that with encryption? Again, the phones are open tonight, 855-450-NOAH, it's one 450 6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com. So we are, in, uh, we are in the full throes of Red Hat Summit. Now, the interesting thing is you might remember Red Hat Summit traditionally alternates between the East Coast and the West Coast. And this year, given the health crisis that has taken over the nation and most of the world, they have opted to do a virtual summit and so they are going to be meeting virtually over the internet and you might say to yourself well self that might start to draw people away from attending red hat summit but turns out come said earlier that uh that this year's summit is the biggest one yet with more than thirty-eight thousand registrations so of course we are uh are continuing to watch what's coming out of red hat summit and uh And we'll condense it down. Essentially, uh, it comes down to three things that are of importance as of today, and that is OpenShift 4.4 release, the advanced cluster management for Kubernetes and the OpenShift virtualization. We'll talk more about all of those uh, coming up throughout the episode. So if you're running at cloud native applications at scale. Those can be difficult to manage, particularly if they are in a bunch of uh, if they're sped up over a bunch of separate Kubernetes clusters. And to help, Red Hat has announced its advanced cluster management platform for Kubernetes. And essentially, this capability is going to let people manage uh, both Kubernetes clusters themselves and the applications with, uh, as they put it, a really rich lifecycle capability so that they can start operating their Kubernetes and OpenShift clusters at scale from a single place, um, the real world implications are simply that you're going to be able to manage all these clusters all in one place, OpenShift, AWS, uh, so on, and so forth. And um, the other thing that they're trying to uh, to address is when you have a, a, a when you have an infrastructure that is dynamic and you have to scale or respond um, to increasing or decreasing workflow and demand, it's typically faster than what a human can actually Uh, implement changes and so what they have done is they've gone to a policy-based management where you can establish the policies rather than um trying to respond dynamically to the situation and so it allows you to spin up or take down infrastructure according to the needs of your customers or your clients or whoever your end users are and so if all of this works out the way that red hat is um is, is presenting it and demonstrating it to work out. And I have no reason that it wouldn't, uh, or at least I have no reason to believe that it wouldn't. This is, this is a really big change. If you're a person that manages Kubernetes clusters, this is a major tool in your toolbox. And so red hat has unsurprisingly devoted a lot of time to talking about this and explaining it. And I won't recover what they've talked about, but I encourage you to go back and watch some of the content that is coming out of uh red hat summit. And, um, but th- this is really exciting, and, it, and, it's, and it's great to see that the money that IBM has spent to acquire Red Hat is being put direct, in direct use to creating open source tools and utilities that directly benefit the people that have signed up to leverage their infrastructure on top of Red Hat. Thinkpads are going to be shipping with Fedora. You'll soon be able to get a Fedora pre-installed with Fedora. Right, excuse me, you'll soon be able to get a ThinkPad pre-installed with Fedora by selecting it as you customize your purchase. Now, this is a pilot program of Lenovo's Linux Community Series. They're going to start with Fedora Edition, beginning with the ThinkPad P1 Gen 2, the ThinkPad P5, uh, the P53, the ThinkPad X1 Carbon Generation 8, and um, possibly expanding into other lines as they move into the future. Now, a little backstory for you. IBM originally made the ThinkPad, then the ThinkPad uh, line, and the well, they, actually, they made the Think Server, they made the ThinkPad, and they made the Think Center, I think, which was their desktop, and they sold uh, their computer line to Lenovo, and they've always had a close working relationship with Lenovo. I have a, a family member that actually works at IBM has for years and he, even after they sold off the line they still internally kept using them and can maintain a very close relationship with Lenovo. Well unsurprisingly as IBM has now acquired Red Hat who by the way was always using ThinkPads um, because they just run Linux out of the box better than any other brand that you can buy off the shelf. Um, Lenovo has started to uh, IBM has started to Put some pressure on Lenovo to say, hey, you know, what would be really great is if we can get these uh, laptops out. And so Matt Miller and the team with Fedora has been working with Lenovo and they they have come to an agreement and, and struck a deal in which Lenovo is going to provide the hardware for Fedora. Now, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first hardware ever to ship. Uh, Supporting Fedora out of the box. Of course, Lenovo, Dell, HP and others have supported Red Hat Enterprise Linux running on their server platforms because, of course, that's very popular. But up until now, you've not been able to ever purchase a desktop or a laptop with Fedora. And so this is a big moment for not only Fedora, but for Red Hat at large. And as a, Fido- a long-time Fedora user, I've used every version of Fedora since Fedora Core 1. And before that, I was using uh, Red Hat 9 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5 before that, right? This is, uh, this is interesting because obviously they have Fedora and the team at Fedora have always focused on creating an installer and an installation process that can replace another operating system and make that barrier to entry very easy. Um, But this is a game changer because what this allows people to do is to walk into a store or go onto a website and order a computer, a major brand of computer, I might add, with Linux. A lot of people out there are listening to this and they're saying to themselves, well, what about Entraware? What about System76? What about, I mean, there is a laundry list of places that do manufacture computers specifically for Linux. And certainly if you want to support the community, you should purchase a laptop from one of those vendors. Um, I don't think I I don't think it would be anything shocking to say that there is no amount of Linux users that are going to purchase or not purchase a Lenovo laptop that are going to drastically change the outcome of this pilot program. Um, But be that as it may, you have businesses that are looking to purchase computers, and many of them could probably fulfill their business requirements with Fedora or Ubuntu or even Red Hat Enterprise Linux. But right now, they don't have the option of purchasing from a hardware vendor, and that puts up uh, some barriers because what you wind up with is a situation in which half the, you 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 install third party operating system and then all of a sudden your hardware vendor tells you, well, we you you can't we we can't really support that because you you put a third party operating system on there and they go back to the third party operating system they say, well, that we didn't know about that particular model of computer it has this particular Wi Fi card or that particular Bluetooth chip in it and so well we don't really know why this distro doesn't work on there and so I mean, obviously we do the best we can as a community, but it. It, it it works for people at home. It works for hobbyists. It works for enthusiasts, it even works in the business sphere, as long as you have somebody to manage the thing. But if you're a business and you don't know anything about Linux and the guy at Lenovo tells you, well, th- you have this option for X amount of dollars and a Windows license, and then you'll have a Windows computer and it will come with all of the advantages and disadvantages of Windows. Or you could go over here to this other platform, and this other platform has increased security, Uh, increased stability, increased uh, software availability at a lower price point. Yeah, that starts to sound pretty appealing to a business owner, I would think. Mark Pearson, uh, senior Linux developer from Lenovo, said Lenovo and quote, Lenovo is excited to become a part of the Fedora community. We want to ensure an optimal Linux experience on our products, and we're committed to working with and learning from the open source community couple things that we have learned over the past few years. People want inexpensive, reliable, secure computers. It started back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when people were trying to get off of Windows onto some other platform. And of course, at that time, there was a push to try to pull people into the Linux desktop. But the Linux desktop was not ready for the enterprise. It certainly wasn't ready for the home user. And so the natural progression then was to go to MacBooks. But what you've seen in the last four to five years is actually maybe going back a little longer than that. You watched a transition into the netbook era where a lot of people had a a little netbook with them. And again, you run into this problem of, yes, Linux ran on those netbooks. In fact, a couple of them came pre-installed with Linux. But here's the problem. Unless you want to be a part-time IT guy to your family and friends, you don't recommend that. You don't recommend that they purchase the Asus EPC, I think, was one of the first ones that came pre-installed with Linux. Why? Because you don't want to be the support guy for the next two years or three years or however long that machine is kicking around. And so what that does is it rules out grandpa, rules out dad, it rules out uh, your best friend from using Linux sometimes. And so a lot of those people pushed their loved ones and friends and so on and so forth and said, hey, you know, just get a Mac. And then people went to Chromebooks, and this is kind of where we are now, is we have entered an era in which if you walk into Best Buy and you walk into Office Max or Office Deep or whatever your big box electronics store is, and you say to yourself or say to the salesman, I want a computer that is going to let me edit some Word documents, view some pictures, browse Facebook, play a couple of online uh, you know, uh, uh, games just inside the web browser kind of a thing, and that's basically what I use my laptop for. Not an unsurprising use case in 2020. In fact, a lot of people have that specific use case. And maybe if they're if they have they use it for their job, then maybe they write a couple of emails, and they might need to edit some documents or maybe put together a presentation. All of those things can be done on a Chromebook. You know what else? All those things can be done on a Pinebook. And when I got my Pinebook for 200 bucks and pulled it out and started using it, I realized how much power can really be packed into a low-cost computer. And that thing charges with Type-C. So I'm going to use the same accessories that I would use on any higher-end computer. I have the same general experience from a user interface and security and stability standpoint. Certainly, I have the same experience from a cost standpoint or less. And the computer ran really well. And so what that tells me is that the vast majority of people, for their day-to-day computing u- needs, would be able to use something like a Linux distro. And this is something I've been saying for years, since back in the Linux Action Show days, we go out and convince people, hey, look at this, sit down in front of it and use it. And what do you think? And when you what you find when you actually go out on the street and take a laptop and preload it with Linux and open it up and set it in front of them is, yeah, I can get all of my stuff done on this thing. How much is it? Where do I buy one? And right now we don't have an answer to that. And as the Dells of the world start shipping Ubuntu and of course, System Six continues to grow in in size and scope. And now you have a third player, and that is Lenovo. And I think this is particularly uh, I think this is a particular l- landmark from the standpoint that Red Hat, the company, has been purchasing ThinkPads for years, thousands of them. I mean, it's the st- it's their standard issue laptop to their employees. And of course, when Red Hat takes these in, they load Red Hat. Uh, I think they call it uh, the Corporate Standard Build or CSB, Um, and it's, it's basically a version of Red Hat tailored specifically for them. And so what ends up happening is they don't have support from their own hardware company to make sure the software that they manufacture works on the hardware that they're paying for. So they have begun to rectify that relationship. And I tell you what, it could not have come at a better time. It really could not have because i i was i can't remember exactly how i got into the discussion but i got into discussion on the latest uh version of macOS which is 10.15 and um essentially what they have done is they have they ha, there's been a slow progression to try to merge macOS and iOS and uh Developers, they're trying to make it easy for developers to create Mac apps from the iPad apps that they already have created. And the idea is that they'll run natively alongside the existing Mac apps so that you can just drag and drop between them and they'll take advantage of the larger screen and the more powerful architecture and all of those things. And it's really kind of a brilliant move from Apple because it allows them to capitalize on what is a dying laptop desktop world and instead focus the buzz on their mobile experience, which is considered by many to be quite good. And that comes at a cost to anybody who values privacy, values freedom and wants to get real work done. And I'll give you an example of that. just, just, and again, I not a lot of experience, so I'm sure there's probably ways to get around all of these things, but just in the 15, 20 minutes that I've, I've, I've played with it, any command that uh, that needs to run or touch the file system, you have to give it permission, and so you're constantly bombarded with all of these little popups. They also replaced uh, zsh. They also replaced the bash with zsh. So every time you log in, it lets you know that it's been replaced. Um, macOS also only runs in a read-only volume, and so it's separate from all of your other data. And of course, they see this as a, as a security thing. I see it again as a as a as more walls going up in the walled garden. And then they have a program called Gatekeeper that ensures that new apps that you install have been checked for, quote unquote, known security issues before you can run them. So you're, quote unquote, always using good software or NOAA translation. You're only using software that we say you can use on the device that you paid twenty five hundred dollars for. And that's all fine and well, if you want to live inside of the walled garden of Apple. But the second you want to step out of the garden, the second that you want to go do your own thing, all of a sudden it becomes problematic and um and so you know lenovo isn't going to continue to ship the hardware unless fedora has the software dialed in so the way that i see this working out is that the accountability on both sides increases fedora can't ship software unless they have a reason to believe that it's going to work on Lenovo Thinkpads, and you better believe with an agreement like this in place, they're going to be paying a lot of attention to what Lenovo's lineup is, what hardware is going in there, and they're going to be making sure that when the wireless card, and the Bluetooth card, and whatever else it is, comes out, that they have properly tested and and patched and so on and so forth towards that laptop. This, again, goes back to my argument to why we need to focus more on LTSs and less on rolling releases. It gives everybody a fixed target to focus on. When Lenovo comes out and says, here's the ninth gen X1 Carbon, here it is, and it's going to have an Intel XYZ card, it's going to have a Bluetooth XYZ card, and it's going to have the touch reader from XYZ manufacturer, and it's going to have this particular screen and this particular chipset and this particular motherboard, You say yeah, on and on and on, right? The developers then have a fixed target To work after and then when they release the software we know that that software is going to work with that particular piece of hardware and this again this entirely prevents uh, this whole well you installed the third operating system there's nothing we can do to help as your hardware guy you installed it on an unsupported piece of software There's nothing we can do as your distro guy it keeps everybody held to a higher standard and the critical thing here. Is the that I think has been missing and and maybe it's not missing, maybe it's here and it just hasn't been elaborated or talked about in any of the articles that I found pertaining to Lenovo making laptops for Fedora. But I want to ask the question, what is the financial arrangement back to Fedora? Because if that question hasn't been answered or if it has been answered in the form of, well, they don't. I mean, they make software. And so if they want us to sell our laptops with their software on it, that's fine. But uh, we're not giving anything back to me. That's problematic. Lenovo is now going to make money on every laptop they ship, and that laptop will ship with the GPL license to use the software by written by some of the best software engineers in the world. And Fedora is proudly advertising for Lenovo and saying, hey, you know what? They agreed to our terms because Lenovo didn't just stop in there and say, well, we're going to ship Fedora, but we're going to make this change and that change and, and make sure that this particular driver is installed. And even the NVIDIA card doesn't ship with the NVIDIA card driver. The software that comes on these laptops is only the software that's coming out of the Fedora repository. So this is staying true to an open source nature and an open source belief system. Um, But I want to see money coming back to the Fedora project. Why? Because Lenovo has a vested interest in selling hardware. That's where they make their money. But if you want people in Fedora and you want the developers to spend time fixing the issues on the laptops that you're selling that I think they have... They have an obligation to fund that development to some extent. And to what extent, I will leave up to the Fedora management team in Lenovo. But I hope that there is some some monetary flow uh, from a grateful hardware company that now has a much better software partner than Microsoft. If you are in the market for a laptop, I cannot possibly recommend Lenovo enough. I have a, I believe this is a seventh gen X1 carbon, and it has by far been the best laptop I have ever purchased in my entire life. And I've owned a lot of laptops. Um, the overall build construction of Lenovo is just top notch. But on top of that, they're the way that they look at building computers and how it fits into enterprise just doesn't compare with other manufacturers. And that's not to say I don't like the Dells or system 76s or others of the world, but if you look at what is available in terms of thunderbolt docking in terms of an uh, ethernet card that shares the same Mac address. So no matter what you're plugged into, if you're using Mac stickies and so on and so forth, things that happen on a corporate network, those things are transparent no matter if your laptop is in or out of the dock. Those are the kind of things, those are the kind of decisions that Lenovo makes that I look back and go, well, that's really fantastic that, that they were thinking about this and on top of it, by the way, the battery life just can't be beat. I mean, I, I, I charge this thing at night. I unplug it during the day. I run it all day long. I don't think I really ever look for a power adapter until I get home at night, plug it into the dock while it, uh, while it rests up while I sleep. So, uh, two thumbs way, way up from me. If you're looking at getting a laptop, just make sure to order that puppy with, uh, with fedora pre-installed 1-855-450-NOAH that's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com public money public code this is something that the fsf has been talking about and essentially it is a program that forbids the sharing and exchange of publicly funded um or excuse me it encourages the sharing and exchange of publicly funded code and the idea is to make it so that if your tax dollars are paying for a particular project or a particular government software uh, implementation, that that code should be open source because the people that paid for it should also have access to it. And um, some of the problems that they've run up with trying to use proprietary software, proprietary companies are it it expressly forbids the sharing of exchanging publicly funded code it also prevents corporations or cooperation between public administration and the people who are actually footing the bill it also supports monopolies by hindering competition and as a result many administrations become dependent on just a handful of companies and so this is a this is a major threat to the security of digital infrastructure and by forbidding access to the source code it makes fixing backdoors and security holes extremely difficult, if not entirely impossible. So the Netherlands has been kicking this around and they have made a decision that they will commit to open source by default in an open letter to parliament. The Dutch minister for internal affairs, Raymond Nops commits to free software by default policy and underlines its benefits for society. Current market regulation shall be rewarded to allow publishing free software by the government. Now, It's not all uh, roses and candy because they do make a couple of very important exceptions here. One of the exceptions is to be made for information that could compromise national or government security or information that could be considered a privacy risk. Now, I have a problem with that to a certain extent, because if your software is coded properly, you shouldn't have to worry about it being a risk to uh, government security, right? Right. We should not security by security by obscurity is no security at all. And what I take from that is and why I think that's a very dangerous thing to put in there is because it allows the government. To say something like we are going to close source this because this is the thing that we use to capture people's information or to spy on people or to, you know, whatever it is. And if you're doing something, if a government official is doing something with with tax money from the citizenry. That thing should be out in the open. They should be aware of what that thing is doing. And again, if you're, if you look at that and saying, well, that could give somebody unauthorized access to something, well, now you have a bigger security problem to worry about than the fact that your code is open. That's, that's not the fact that your code is open that's a problem. It's the fact that you have poorly written code. And so you should go back and hire a proper open source developer that can write proper code. The code to Lux is open. I don't worry that my laptop is not is 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 not functioning properly or is not secure because I use an open source encryption scheme. We just talked about EncryptPad. Open PGP is open. It's an open standard. It's open source. There's no reason to believe that it's that EncryptPad is not secure just because the code is open source. I don't buy this argument that there are certain programs that can't be open source because they could compromise national security or government security. I do believe it might compromise the government's ability to spy on people and um And I think that should come out. The other thing is it might not... One of the comments that was made was that it's not worth taking on the additional effort of converting existing software into free software. And so the idea was that they're primarily targeting this product or they're primarily targeting this project towards new software development. And I, again you can't, there's no such thing as software that you just spin up and then it exists, right? It either has to be maintained, it has to continue to be developed, or it has to be replaced. Now, is replacing a piece of software more expensive than uh, maintaining it? Absolutely it is. However, comma, if you have no plans to replace your software and you're, and, and you're just kicking the can down the road with perpetual maintenance and upkeep and so on and so forth, the entire expenditure, of that maintenance gets passed off to the tax base, whereas in an open source model, when LibreOffice comes out with the new version of LibreOffice, even if it doesn't address a specific concern that you, the government of Netherlands, have, uh, it you still get to take advantage of that fix that came down the pipe. And likewise, if in a in a magic world where Noah controls things, all governments were that were that were using public money. We're using open code when the United States government comes up with the TOR network, which they did, um, Navy did, and they release this out. and Now, all of a sudden, the Netherlands can use it. They're going to fix these security holes and the things that make that would be a threat to government security. They get patched and every other government gets to take advantage of that for free. Rising tides, everybody goes up. And this is the model. This is the fundamental model. I'm preaching to the choir to a certain extent because this is the model that has made the Linux operating system so successful. And so I don't, I, I, I don't agree with the, the exception for privacy and for uh, government security. I don't necessarily agree um, that we should abandon trying to convert all existing software. Although I, I will admit, he said it might not be worth taking on the additional risk. And uh, the new procurement policy will also be adopted, free software by default. So the government and its institutions will actively start to publish free software. And uh, the minister is going to report on the progress of this uh, at the beginning of 2021. But I, I'm excited to live in a world in which a government is going to use their, their tax base to fund an open source project. To solve a problem and then give that information to the world so that anybody can use it. I think that's very cool. So, uh, congratulations, Netherlands, for for doing a great job and and moving the ball forward. I think it's uh, I think it's when articles like this come out or when stories like this come out. I kind of look back and you know we're all kind of still burned by Munich and and say, well, maybe they got it wrong. Maybe that's the answer there. Again, eight fifty five four fifty noaa That's 1-855-450-6624, The email live at Ask Noah show com. I uh, She hasn't had a chance to call screen yet, but I'll take you anyway. You're on Ask Noah. Good evening.
0: Hey, Noah. My name's Matt, and I was wondering if you were still playing around with the mod. I am, yes. Awesome. Uh, I was curious how that's going for you. I started playing with it recently, too, and really like it.
1: Yeah, I've so we it's not in production. It's just we're just using it on the side. And what I have found. So let's get let's get everybody caught up to the same place. So the mod is a open source ticket system. And we are evaluating it internally at AltaSpeed Technologies to see if it's something we'd like to replace OS ticket with. And uh, what I'm finding is the inter- interfaces is remarkably better than OS ticket in terms of a modern and sleek appearance. What it what it makes up for, though, in appearance, I think it lacks in in functionality. I think you know they they do have a knowledge base, but OS Ticket has so many granular controls that allow you to tie into a lot of other things, and and a lot of that stuff, you know, like internal tasks and and project delegation and stuff like that, do not seem to be present in Zaman. So it's really more of a, a help desk software than uh, than a full blown IT management software, which is kind of what we're using OS Ticket for. Um and so you know internally what we're talking about doing is just using other solutions to to uh to to circumvent that. Um, but overall, I think that that um ultimately Zamad is what we're going to go for with our uh, with our help desk going forward at some point. I just don't know what date that's going to be. All right, cool. What uh, what what, uh, if, what if, man, can if I ask what you found Open with, Project? Can I ask what you found with it?
0: Uh, I found it seems like it was better for people like you who are like an external IT company. Um, I found things like GitLab would work better internally. Mm. Uh, I really wish I had Kanban support, but then I thought about it and it was like Kanban doesn't work when you have a bunch of clients It works really well when you have like different business units inside of a company.
1: Right. Yeah, very um, much so.
0: But yeah. It, and the email interface, um, was much better in mod than what else I've seen. It was really easy to set up the connector, and it was yeah. like support at domain dot com rather than GitLab, um, where it's support at or support plus API key, which just looks like gibberish to users. domain.com
1: yeah you know i'll tell you something as it relates to os ticket one thing that always kind of bugged me is so the the way that it works by default is if you don't set up an external scheduler it will os ticket will only check the mailbox uh if there is an active user logged in so if somebody from the from the company from the, the support company is logged in as a as a support technician then it will check the mailbox every time or whatever you set the thing to um, if not, you have to set up an external scheduler. And I always found that kind of strange that, that the, 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 way the software works by default is if I'm not logged into the system, that is more, that is the most critical time for you to tell me that a ticket has come in and I'm not seeing it. if I'm logged in, I can just see it myself. So stuff like that was, kind of, was, uh, was always a little frustrating to me. And again, those are the kind of things that seem to be totally worked out in Zamod. again, though, at the expense of a lot of granularity and control.
0: There. And then you were probably thinking about pairing it with something like Open Project for the more project management side stuff, or
1: Open Project. We've got a couple different ones that we're looking at. Um, we've even looked at. Um, I can't think of the one that I can't. I, I can't think of. You know, it kind of caught me off guard. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But we had uh, we had two or three of them. That one was a one was a pro, two two or three of them were a project management system, and then a couple of them were actually customer management customer management solutions. Um, and we were playing around to see what. You know what we would what we would pass off, but a lot of what I'm getting back from our employees is that um, you know when they're working on a project, for the most part, they're using their own tooling for that, so they have Sublime Text open or Kate open or whatever it is, and they're just dumping information. And then when they get done, they compile it all together and then put it into you know wherever it goes. And so for for that, we may just go to an internal wiki, um, and that may be the most. Eff- efficient way for us anyway to store that information because for the most part it's we're just documenting stuff right we're documenting IP schemes and we're documenting um, diagrams and we've recently started taking pictures now of every rack that we we work on and so if we add a new piece of equipment to a rack or we pull something out then the picture gets updated so the idea being if you're sitting back in the shop you get a trouble call and all of a sudden you look at least the engineer who's working in the back can, can look and go oh yeah let's see what the rack physically looks like let's see what these connections are physically doing and he can pull that picture up um so we've started doing stuff like that and 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 those are the kind of things that even outgrow what os ticket is it was really designed for it's not that it's not a good piece of software it's just i'm i'm pushing it beyond what it's capable of and it's not even in the same planet as what Zamod is designed to do so um for all of those reasons we are probably going to split that out and the help desk will just be the help desk and all of the management documentation stuff will be on a separate thing Awesome.
0: Uh do you have any wikis that are front running for you for that or Yeah, we're using uh, right wikis that uh,
1: Yeah, we uh, right now we're, we're using MediaWiki right now because um well frankly, I we we spun we spun up three simultaneous instances. We spun up an instance back in January. We spun up an instance for um, for internal stuff. And then I duplicated that at my home um, so that I could I could write articles or I could write knowledge-based things, and then we, I could just copy the code from one to the other. Um, then I think it was end of February, early April, we launched the, the Linux Delta Wiki. And so all three of those are are, are running MediaWiki, the idea originally being that we could just copy and paste content between the three. Um, but as as this kind of progresses and we're finding more and more needs for how we're going to document customer-side stuff, um, we may end up looking at some other other wiki solutions as well. One of the issues about wikis is like there are so many of them out there and and they all do something different better than the other one uh, to include Confluence, which is just very prevalent in the IT sphere, even if it is an open source. So All right, cool. I didn't have any other questions. Thanks for answering. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855 450 The email live at asknoahshow.com. Colonel calls. Hey, Colonel, welcome to the Ask NOAH show.
2: Hey, so two things. One, um, is there a way that I can call in via mumble?
1: Yeah, you bet. Jump in Mumble and then what we ask people to do is just um shoot me a message in the IRC that's uh that's ask Noah's Show in geek, in uh in uh FreeNode and uh, and just say hey, I've got I've got something to say and I'll pull you up. Um yeah, you can join okay. Mumble in time. In fact, it sounds way better.
2: Yeah, well, and actually that's how I normally listen to the show. Second, um and this follows on to Mumble, um there is a community meetup, a virtual lug of sorts. We're calling it the LUPLUG, and it meets the same time as Linux Unplugged, uh, unplugged airs, and, but on Sunday. So that would be noon Pacific, and we're using the same mumble room. We're just in the lobby.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for letting me know. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate that.
2: Yeah, so I didn't know if any of your listeners who aren't uh, Linux Unplugged listeners might want to join us, but uh, yeah, we typically we start around uh, noon Pacific, and this last Sunday we went all the way to I think it was like 10 or 11 Pacific. Oh, well, that's so, awesome! I um, it just. Yeah, people jump in and out as
1: they can. That's that's really cool. I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. I wish I could join. Unfortunately, I have, uh, I have this other show I do on Sundays called Destination Linux. And so I'm, I'm over there hanging out uh, between noon and 3. So unfortunately, I won't be able to join you. But I'm glad that there are people that are doing stuff like this, particularly during COVID. I think it's a particularly nice time um, to start uh, – to start moving some of these things virtually and try to uh, try to move the community that direction. Again, one eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow Ubuntu twenty oh four has been released. Focal Fossa. And um, it it has been released with GNOME 3.36 as the default desktop. It is the latest LTS, and so of course I'm recommending that people upgrade. Now this is one of the best releases I've seen from Canonical since the change uh, over to GNOME. They're still shipping with X, as I would expect them to, as Wayland still hasn't really been entirely worked out. Uh, snaps are are everywhere. The the software store has been replaced by the by the Snap Store. And here's what I have noticed in using, uh, in using 2004. Now, I guess a couple of disclaimers. My testing machine is an HP ProBook. What is this thing? I don't know. But it's, it's, it has an i5-5200, 8 gigs of RAM. It has an SSD. Um, and uh, the, the overall speed of the desktop seems like it's a little snappier. Mostly what I have seen is that there is a lot of polish. One of the things that made Unity the best desktop Uh, environment of its day was the fact that Canonical crawled into every little corner and fixed tiny little things. And so everything was just very cohesive. And I can't I can't count the number of times that I heard somebody tell me, uh, oh, hey, there's just not a lot going on with Ubuntu. Nothing ever changes. It seems like it's more of the same. But I, I, I didn't back then agree, and I still don't agree that that was ever the case. I think Canonical did a very excellent job at maintaining Unity to give it a, a lot of polish. And I think what, you're, what you see on 2004 is that level of polish beginning to be applied to, uh, to the GNOME desktop. And understand that Canonical's hands, to a certain degree, are tied because not every change that they want to make to the GNOME desktop is going to be approved by the GNOME folks. And so they have to make a decision. At some point, is this the hill we want to die on? Or do we just want to go along to get along for the purpose of we don't want to have to maintain our own separate fork of Gnome? And so I I, I can't tell you which of these changes are to be attributed to the Gnome team and which changes of these are to be uh, are to be attributed to the Ubuntu team. All I can tell you is that Ubuntu 2004 is a very polished distro um, and the the it starts right away when you boot the thing up the very first thing you're going to notice when you boot into the installer is again uh, they have made ZFS on root a option and this makes it just a radio button now they say it's experimental so take that for what it's worth however plenty of people are using ZFS on root in production number one number two they wouldn't have even included the experimental feature I believe in an LTS if it wasn't reliable enough so I went ahead and installed ZFS on root. One of the things I was kind of uh, disappointed was, it, you 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 forego the option of encrypting your hard drive if you do ZFS on root. Now maybe there's some way to drop below uh, into a command prompt or do something by hand. I, I'm not sure, but what I can tell you is that the there is you can encrypt the drive with with um with Lux on top of LVM, but there did not seem to be a way to install ZFS on root and encrypt. Um, so that's kind of a sad thing that I have to pick between those two, but hopefully that will, that will be uh, that will be changed down, down the road. And I'm sure there's a very good reason that, that, that wasn't included. Um, when you get into the log on screen, gone is the stupid swipe thing that really looks like it was designed for a tablet that never was. And, uh, and, and replaced is a little animation that goes from your name um, to the password. And uh, they've also similarly changed the logout options again from the tablet that never was, where I think you I don't remember what you clicked on, to be honest with. You. I think you had to hold alt or something like that to get to get a list of other options to come out. But now you just click out logout um, and you have the option and the opportunity to do that. They are including Xfat support uh, so that uh, if you have uh, larger file sizes that are on an XFAT memory card, a lot of new digital cameras, digital video cameras are coming with that and. WireGuard, the new simplified, widely available VPN service or VPN uh, protocol that we had the lead developer Jason Donafield on last week uh, with up to date cryptography and uh, insane defaults. It's included in 2004, and they're also going to backport WireGuard to 1804 in a statement. WireGuard creator Jason Donafield said, including WireGuard by default in all recent versions of Ubuntu means that users will finally have a great out-of-the-box secure tunnel on Ubuntu. And, uh, of course, as I said, uh, ZFS uh, now supports the latest version of the Oracle-based file system and includes disk encryption and performance enhancements. So, snaps, again, everywhere. Replace the software store with the snap store. Um, they are more secure, and that's because they are strictly confining snap programs to the containers and so a badly behaving app can't impact the overall operating system. And you know right now I would still tell you that snaps are a little give and take. Uh, some of them are great to use. I found that the YouTube DL snap Uh, offers I find have far less problems with it than I have if I install it right from the repo. I have found a lot of issues with uh, I've had issues with the Telegram snap. My son had an issue with the Minecraft installer snap. Um, So they're not they're not perfect yet. And certainly if you're a person that's very sensitive to themes and looks, a lot of the snap packages, um, because of the way that the confinement works, are not uh, currently respecting um, your themes. And so that can be problematic if, if that's something that you care about. Canonical is also taking security to the next level. 2004 includes native support for AMD secure encrypted virtualization with accelerated memory encryption designed for data in use protection, as well as high performance scaling for AMD Epic processors with 256 threads and beyond. Um, there's a kernel lockdown mode. This optional Linux security module keeps uh, preventing the root account from working with kernel code in some instances, and it also makes it much harder for compromised root accounts to compromise the the the, the entire system. It incorporates a kernel self protection this is a variety of improvements designed to protect against kernel security flaws, and they 've included a secure boot utility and secure shell. Uh, fast ID on uh, online multifactor authentication, also known as the FIDO standard, um, which will let a user log into a website without using a password. Now, if you're not if you're not following the FIDO2 standard, this comes back to we start with two factor, which is something you have and something, you know, uh, FIDO2 is kind of the evolution of that. And the idea being that if I can just reset my email password, if if email is my two factor. But I can also just reset my password by typing in my email address, and then I go to the something I have and then click on a link or whatever, and I can reset the password. Why bother making me log in at all? Why not just have something that I have access to, prove that I have access to that thing, and then you let me into my account? And that's kind of how the FIDO2 standard works. They've started with little USB uh, keys. YubiKey is one of them. They make the little blue one for 25 bucks, And um, now... Ubuntu 2004 is including uh, the FIDO multi-factor authentication uh, with the distra as well. So that's really exciting to see. Support is taking a next level, too. Historically, Ubuntu LTS has come with five years of support, so you could safely plan on using Ubuntu until 2025. However, they now have an option. If you pay for Ubuntu Advantage, you'll be able to run supported apps for a decade. That would be until 2030, also for 30 thousand open source applications which previously didn't have support. And so Mark Shuttleworth explained that we're offering a full 10 years of coverage for all packages, including the 30,000 packages we'll, that we never previously covered with security updates. This represents a huge improvement in enterprise security. I would also say that it, it represents a huge improvement in enterprise stability because as an organization, if I can purchase a computer from Lenovo or or, or Dell and it comes pre-installed with a, 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 the LTS of Ubuntu and then I can go purchase a package on top of that from Canonical and I don't have to touch that machine for 10 years, not only the operating system covered, but if I'm using open source software, like every business should be, those are going to be covered too. That's a really, really, really good buy. That's a good deal. And the other thing is it offers the opportunity for Linux users to be able to tell Canonical and other Linux distro manufacturers, Hey, we are willing to pay you if you do good work. And so if you provide support to me, then I will give you money. For gamers, 20.04 comes with Feral Interactive Game Mode performance tools, which will be installed by by default. Game Mode is a Linux daemon that enables games to request things like more CPU power, IO priority, and some other optimizations. And so what does this mean for you, the end user? Well, Linux games are going to run much smoother on Ubuntu 20.04. Uh, Proprietary NVIDIA graphic drivers have also been added for improved graphic performance and the UI for presenting and selecting these drivers has also been improved. That is to say you just go into settings, click on additional drivers, and then you 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 click on the driver that you want to use. Uh, Developers, they didn't leave you guys out. Python 3.8 is now the default Python. Python 2.7 has been moved to universe. Um, It's not included by default in any new installs, and the remaining programs which require Python 2.7 have been updated to use slash user slash bin slash Python 2 as their interpreter. If you upgrade from a previous release, um, then user slash bin slash Python will continue to point to Python 2 for compatibility. And for AI and ML developers, Ubuntu supports Kubeflow. Kubeflow allows for users to quickly create, train, uh, and tune neural networks within Kubernetes uh, for dynamic resource provisioning. Kubeflow works well with TensorFlow and other modern AI ML frameworks such as PyTorch, MXNet, and Chainer for allowing users to enhance their existing code and setup. Um, If you're a Windows user... And you're asking, am I left out? No, you're not. WSL, the Windows subsystem for Linux uh, on 2004, is available now. Shuttleworth said that WSL uh, enables deep interaction with Linux applications in Windows 10. This offers Windows users first-class engineering workstation experiences within minutes. Accompanying the revamped login screen is a brand-new lock screen, and this will not only be easier to use... But it no longer requires you to slide up first to reveal the password field, but has a visual presentation of using a blurred version of the desktop wallpaper. So all in all, a really fantastic release for Canonical. And again, what I would argue is the the completion of the transition to the GNOME desktop from Unity, because I feel like I'm back to where I was it doesn't feel like it's just a, It doesn't feel like it's just Ubuntu Gnome now renamed Ubuntu proper. It feels like it's Canonical has put their touch on it, and they've done a very, very good job. Um, my testing machine was an HP i5 5200 Probook, as I said, with eight gigs of RAM and an SSD. I did have a problem with my wireless card. My wireless AC 3160 was not detected by default, and I couldn't get it to work. So I had to use a, a USB dongle um, to connect to to Wi-Fi. So I, I thought I'd throw that in there. Also had a, a minor issue, but uh, some of the dialogue windows uh, were still light even after changing to the dark mode. So they've added this one-click button. You go into settings, click on dark mode, and it changes everything to dark. And for the most part, that works really, really well. Um, but it misses a couple of things, and one of the things is it doesn't do the dialogue. So if you right-click on the desktop, you click on the wireless networks, any of those dialogues are going to show up as a big white window. Um, additionally, it didn't... It, a uh, GNOME tweak tool, which is the, the, the tool I would ordinarily use to go through and, and, and customize some of those dialog boxes, um, was not installed by default. And so I'm kind of back to, well, it, it's almost good out of the box, but I still have to make a couple of tweaks to make it work. Again, not a big deal, but I thought it was something worth mentioning. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: Yeah, uh, I ran into a minor issue, um, I don't know if it's just on this flavor or not, of uh, the mint 19.3 and DOS box, no wouldn't uh, do mouse input proper. My only solution, because I couldn't figure out what to do, was roll back to 19.2. And I was wondering if anybody else ran across uh, uh, that, and it might have something to do with X, but I'm not sure.
1: Okay. Well, uh James, what I would tell you to do, I would start by trying to I would start by always going to the the, the, the base distro, right? So starting with something like the the latest release of the LTS and see if it works there. Um, if it works there, then I would just use that. Um, if you want to install a different desktop ent- environment on top of that, I I would do so. Um, when you start getting into the the spins that aren't really spins, it's not really an Ubuntu base. It's a modified Ubuntu base, and Linux Mitten specifically makes a lot of changes to their distro. And so if you're having trouble with that, I would encourage you um, to to try to go back to uh Come back to zero, re-zero, and then and then kind of go from there. Again, eight fifty-five, four fifty. Noah, that's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, Justin writes in and says, hey, no, a longtime listener, first time uh, emailer, have a few questions to ask. I hope these aren't so long so I'll understand if you can't answer them all on the air. I'm trying to help my sister pick out a laptop to buy for her personal use. She's been using an iPad as her primary device for years, but has recently come to the realization that certain things are better done on a computer. She's open to using Linux, and that is my preference as well. This is what I use. And it's what I wish to support her on. I have some ideas, but I came across a tech programming background, so my ideas on specs aren't necessarily make sense in this case. Requirements, web browsing, capable of running Audacity, DAW, she's an MG musician who would like to start doing more recording and also record a podcast together. Ideally, last around five years without feeling slow. Sleek, in her words. Question, what laptop or specs would you recommend? It can be new or used in the $500 to $1,000 range. What distro would you recommend? I'm leaning towards Ubuntu. Previously, she's used Windows and Mac OS. still has Windows for work. What audio interface, mic and MIDI in, would you recommend? I have some experience with Focusrite, which has always worked well. Love to hear your inputs. What's the best way to provide her with support remotely? I live in Illinois. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, in order... I would recommend checking out a Lenovo ThinkPad. I think you're going to find that that will easily last you five years. If you buy it used, you'll be closer to the $500 mark. If you buy it new, you'll be closer to the $1,000 mark. It will meet all of your requirements. If you buy the X1 Carbon specifically, I think she will find that to be a very sleek computer. That's certainly how I would describe it. And uh, as far as what distro, I always recommend, unless you have a reason to do otherwise, stick with Ubuntu Uh, the LTS and whatever the default desktop that Ubuntu ships, because this is what uh, the vast majority of other users who are using Linux are using. And so she goes online and Google something or needs support. uh, That's going to be easier as far as how to support her. um, I've always recommended simple help in the past, and I would still do so if, if uh, if my next suggestion doesn't work out, but there is a new open source competitor to simple Help that I am actively looking into. It's called remotely. And, um, I have, I have, I have only played with it for a couple of uh, for a couple of hours, so I, I can't give it a full recommendation yet. But it's something I would certainly check into because I'd always rather have open source software running on my computer with full access than proprietary. We're out of time. That's what the music means. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday.